sort of an aged man, an aged king, giving counsel to young Solomon on how to deal with those who would attempt to end the young man's life after David himself went the way of Solomon. In between, David lived one of the most remarkable lives that has ever been lived on this planet. And I speak in that hyperbole there. That's correct. It was not a perfect life. No one who has studied David would even pretend it to be so. I suspect that David might lack the character of the most that we would sometimes study about. The king that he is, every aspect of his life is an inhibited Often, this is a positive thing, but sometimes not. David was a faithful shepherd of those few sheep in the wilderness. He was a musician in the court of the king. He was a fearless warrior. He was a desperate fugitive. And as king, he was king against which all other kings of Israel had been led. At least up until the time the king of Israel reigned in the Davidic land. Above all, he was a man who loved God with an intensity
to be fearful of Saul. Because now he's going to anoint a new king. Saul is not walking with the Lord at this point in his life. And Saul would likely have attempted to stop him. Kings rarely hand over their crown without a fight. And he would most likely have attempted to stop Samuel by use of force if he would have needed to, had he known the real reason of the visit to Bethlehem. That's why I think Samuel does say, not because he's a coward, but because he knows Saul. Listen, if I go there and anoint a new king, I've already told him one's going to be anointed. He's probably going to kill me. The implication means he's probably going to kill whoever this new king is as well. You remember we studied that Nehemiah, all this palace intrigue with Xerxes being assassinated by Artabanus and Artabanus being assassinated by Artaxerxes and all these things that happened in the palace. We see that all throughout history with men of history. Caesar, we mentioned him before, assassinated in the Roman Senate by a bunch of very weak-minded people thinking that they were doing the people a favor. They take, they take the robe out and, and think that they were uh, going to be cheered as conquering heroes, and they were shunned. So palace intrigue is something that goes all the way back into the biblical times and into the first century as well. The second thing, the elders of Bethlehem, which is a small town, by the way, were most likely afraid because Samuel by this time had something of a reputation. And while they might not have had wireless devices or telephones or television or Fox News, word did get around. You recall that, that Samuel had just gotten through chopping up Agag, the Amalekite king, chopping into a bunch of little pieces because Saul wouldn't do it. This is no ordinary judge. This is no ordinary prophet. And so he had already participated in this very bloody execution of Agag. And so they're very likely afraid when they see Samuel come into town. And, and Bethlehem is not on his regular route. You know, he had the Methodist circuit riders. They would have a certain route of churches that they would go visit. Bethlehem was not apparently on his regular route. So they see this guy who just got through chopping up Agag coming to their town. They're wondering, what did I do? And am I going to be the next one? So he has something of a reputation. I believe that's why they're a bit frightened here. The family that we're introduced to is the family of Jesse. Jesse's the son of Obed, but he's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Jesse is in the line of Judah, who we learn all the way back in Genesis is going to be the line of Messiah. This is significant in that David is of the line of Judah, and he is then therefore in the line of the Messiah. As we see the unfolding of history take place, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the promise, well, actually the oracle against the serpent, God tells the serpent that you're going to crush his heel, but I'm going to, you're going to bite him on the heel, but I'm going to crush you on the head. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. The seed of the woman is going to ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. Well, the seed of the woman could have been anybody. Eve thinks the seed of the woman is Cain. That's her first child. She would have no reason to believe otherwise. We find out very quickly that it's not Cain. Cain is hardly a righteous person, one that's ultimately good, that will ultimately conquer evil. The next person in line seems to be Noah. Noah was a righteous man, the most righteous man on earth at the time, but Noah fails as well. He doesn't, he doesn't prove to be ultimately righteous. Then in Genesis chapter 12, this whole thing comes to a, a very narrowing point where we find that the seed of the woman is not Abraham, but the seed of the woman is going to come through Abraham. And then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then through Judah. 
And now this is the next revelation. I wait till we get to Second Samuel chapter seven. We'll find that the seed of the woman is going to come through David. So there is an established line, and David's right in the middle of it. In fact, Jesus will be called David's greatest son. He's called the son of David. David is a central figure in the outworking of God's purpose with regard to the seed of the woman. So Jesse's the son of Obed, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Yes, that's the name of the book of Ruth. He's in the line of Judah, and as such, he is in the line of the Messiah. So we see Samuel come to town. The elders of the city are frightened. They're trembling. Jesse and the elders are all told to go consecrate themselves, get themselves ready for worship. Then, in verses 6 through 11, Samuel examines and rejects seven of Jesse's sons from oldest to young. It makes sense that if he's going to appoint, anoint rather, a king from the sons of Jesse, it makes sense that he would start with the oldest and go to the youngest. That was the cultural norm at the time. But as we've seen over and over again in books like Genesis, for example, God doesn't necessarily follow cultural norms. So it wasn't the oldest. We go from the oldest all the way down to go through all seven sons. And Samuel says, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. In verse 7, there's something that's very telling that is said here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. Remember, that's one of the things that made Saul so striking. He was taller than most of the people. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's speaking of the first son, Eliab. For I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. Now, every time I see one of these shows like you know, the Academy Awards and some of these people on the cover of People magazine, and it's, and it's just behaving so poorly. They'll say it on so beautiful. They're so perfect. And our culture just falls at their feet and worships them because of an external appearance. Every time I see one of those things, I remember this verse. But that's not the way God looks at us. God looks at the soul. And that's what impresses him. Not external beauty. There's nothing wrong with external beauty. There's nothing wrong with us when everything is right with Christians being the best we can with what we have. We really should. We need, we need to be a good testament. But we ought not to fall into that same trap of external beauty. God looks at the heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab. They were passed before Samuel, and neither the Lord chosen him. He goes to the next sons. And finally, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? He's been through seven of them now. Samuel was probably a little bit discreet. Had he, had he got the name right from God? Was it really supposed to be Jesse's family? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes in. This wasn't a five minute trip. They stood up in anticipation. Can you see why? If they've already gone through seven and there's only one left, Samuel knows in his mind, this must be the one. I'm not going to sit down until we see this person. Some have speculated that because David is in the field and not with the other brother, not with the other son, and because the leaders of the village were fearful of Samuel's wisdom, that perhaps that meant that David was the result of an extramarital affair between Jesse and 
David's men. The reason that those who hold that view speculation is that the elders of, of the town must have known about this affair that Jesse had with David's mother and refused to do anything about it. And they're afraid that now Samuel has come to town to bring the hammer down on not only on Jesse, but on all the elders of the town because they did not step in and do something about what they saw in terms of unrighteousness. With all due respect, to those who hold that view, and it is a minority view. I cannot see that in this text. We would be the overwhelming majority of Old Testament scholars on that. It may be true, but you'd be really hard-pressed with a normal, literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation to come up with that. Jesse and David's mother are still together, by the way, when she gets first Samuel chapter 17. That's what I talked about yesterday. But even if it was true, it's not the point. It's no disrespect to David at all. We wouldn't think any less of him if he was illegitimate, if I could use that word. Although I don't even like that term. There are no illegitimate children. There are illegitimate parents. But in my view, there are no illegitimate children. We ought to call the dad and the mom the B word, not the child. There's another very popular preacher who said one time in a sermon based upon this passage and one other that David was an unloved child, that he was an unwanted child, that he was an abused child. Well, it certainly looks like David's at the bottom of the ladder, but he's the youngest child. Now, whether David was unloved or unwanted, maybe by his brother, you know, we see that, but, but whether he was unloved or wanted by his mother, how, where do you get that from? I mean, where, what I'd like to do is not fill in too many blanks that God doesn't fill in for us. Now, in verse 12, this is where we actually meet David for the first time. So he sent and brought him in. They, they may have taken some time because they were out in the field tending the sheep. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and had a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the ceremonial of Samuel. Anoint in Jesse's name. That's the word. Anoint Jesse. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose and was filled. And the text says from a handsome appearance. David was a handsome man. He was ruddy, which could mean he was redheaded. He was possibly redheaded, although that word could mean other things. Some people believe that David was blonde, but I think that's a little bit harder to come up with in this text. He also had beautiful eyes. Remember our study of Genesis, when women were called beautiful, they had beautiful eyes. In a, in a woman in the ancient world, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because typically they would wear, what color do they wear veil? So if you, if you wanted to have a glimpse of her beauty, that would be all you get to see, is her eyes. So beautiful eyes, then, would translate to beautiful woman. But it's also true of men as well, apparently, in the ancient Near East, that their eyes were a reflection of their beauty. We have different standards today. 
the best one in there. David was probably about 15 or 16 years old when this event took place. The reason I bring that up is a little bit later on, not too many weeks from now, we'll be studying David and Goliath. And I know a lot of our children's books have a, have a David that looks like he's 9 or 10 years old out there with a slingshot fighting Goliath. If you do the math and, and go through the chronologies of David's flight from Saul and when he ends up becoming king, David is probably closer to 18 years old when he's fighting Saul. So he is a, a pretty good physical specimen. By, by, I'm sorry, by the time he fights Goliath, he's a pretty good physical specimen. He had already killed with his bare hands a lion and killed with his bare hands a bear. We ought not to get the wrong picture of this, though. This is a guy who doesn't back down to anything. This is a guy who doesn't want to let even one sheep be lost. He cared about every single one of the sheep. Does that sound the least bit familiar? Every single one of them matters to David, and David was willing to risk his life. He was going to put his life on the line for every single one of those sheep. Does that sound familiar? Well, it really ought to. Let me just set the setting. David is 15 or 16. He's externally beautiful, just like Saul was. There's nothing to indicate that David was as tall as Saul. In fact, you can probably say by the silence, since Saul's attention and David did not, we probably say he's not as tall as Saul, but he is a handsome young man. But he's not chosen because of his external beauty. He's chosen because of his internal beauty that God can see. In fact, when you get back down to it, God's the only one that can do that. He can see some things of, of internal beauty that come out externally. But God's really the only one that can read our heart. He's the only one that can read our motivation. That's why God tells us to be really slow to judge people, to make critical evaluations of people. Because we don't know everything that's going on in their head. We don't know all the circumstances. We don't know that the person that just cut you off absentmindedly in traffic one day may very well have just got a call that their mother has passed away. And they're not paying any attention. He knew what was right in the heart of David. And he knows what's in your heart, he knows what's in my heart, and he knows that. So when it comes time for evaluation for us as a judge to see what's going on, we don't have to worry about Christ giving us the And guess what? We also don't have to be somehow thinking out of ways that we're going to see them. You know, like you do with teachers in school, and that's why Jason's playing 40 months with teachers in school every day, thinking that that was going to help him get a better grade. And I think it did. I think he actually did. He passed that class, probably because of this other thing he said he just stopped on the way in today. It's not going to be that way with God because he knows every thought and the motivation and the action that results in those motivations. God looks at the heart. So David's chosen not because of his external beauty, but because of his internal beauty. Now, verse 13 reports that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. That's the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 will report. Let's go ahead and read it. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. It seems as though, if not simultaneously, very, very close, closely related, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David and leaves Saul. In this dispensation, we cannot lose the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can lose the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
But we can't lose the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when we see David pray, take not that Holy Spirit from me, that's not a prayer that we would pray in this circumstance. But it was a reality for him. Again, the reason he's going to pray that is because when the Spirit leaves, at least by virtue of the example we have from Saul, the kingdom's going to be gone. So the Holy Spirit would enable David in a very special way to do the job that God had given him. And so begins our study of the life of David. He's a man chosen by God for the task of leading his people, leading God's people. He's a man after God's own heart. This study unfolds the significance of that very well-known phrase. I believe will become more 